Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you on this sunny Sunday. Um, this series is brill, isn't it? Uh, I, it's really captured my heart. There's something about it that uh, just has really excited my spirit. So we're looking at um, the title as such is From Familiar to Fascinated. Um, so we're looking at really Jesus' interactions with those he encountered after he had risen from the dead. So I'm going to put a picture up here of somebody. So this handsome chappy, this uh, is uh, one portrayal of what Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, uh, may have looked like. And it kind of most closely aligned with what I had in my head. So whenever I say Thomas, um, I bet you there's one thing that comes into your head. Um, what is it? Thomas? Doubter. Absolutely. Thomas the doubter. And um, I thought exactly the same through the years. It's like, oh, yeah, he's the one who doubted. Because that's kind of what we have been conditioned to think, isn't it? Whenever we hear his name. But if we stop to think about it, how judgmental is that really? Because are there any of us here who could say that we never experience any doubt at all whenever it comes to our faith? And as we go through life, we can find that people can speak all sorts of things over us. They can label us in various ways. Pause with me for a second. So yeah, we can find that people, they label us as such and such. There are statements that are said over us that almost become part of our identity as we go about life. And they can hold us back. And in some way, they can actually shape or start to define us as well. <clears throat> and, you know, when I think about over the years, so many people have come to me and they've said, you know, I was told by a teacher, you'll never amount to anything. You know, words can have such a detrimental impact on all of us as the years go past. And the enemy just loves that. He loves to bind us by words that have been wrongly spoken against us. And you know what, guys? We actually can put labels on ourselves too, can't we? We can label ourselves as unworthy, maybe a disappointment, stupid. And this morning, before I go on, I, I guess I just want to flag up. I feel that one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to do today um, is for us to bring these labels that we carry and to lay them at the foot of the cross, to break the power and the hold that these have over our lives. And so my prayer is that just as I continue speaking, that the Holy Spirit will start ministering to you. Um, and then at the end of the service, we have a prayer ministry team who would love to stand with you. But this is what I would love to see us doing today. It's taking these labels and bringing them to the foot of the cross, laying them before Jesus. Over the years, I think I've learned to take a bit of a step back. Whenever somebody has labeled somebody as such and such, I've kind of learned to think, you know, 
I think I'll just make up my own mind. And more often than not, that person has proved quite different to the label um, that I was told. So this morning, let's lay aside any preconceptions we may have about this guy, Thomas, um, and let's give him a fair hearing as we study his character and his relationship with Jesus. And it's quite funny because as I have been preparing this, I have literally found myself getting really defensive and quite protective over this character. And I suppose there's part of me who is a bit of a fighting for the underdog sort of person. But I've really found myself wanting to redeem in some way this label of doubter that has defined Thomas throughout the years because he was so much more than this. And in Jesus' eyes, he would have looked and viewed him very differently as well. Because the thing is, that label doubter was not given by Jesus. And yes, Jesus told him to stop doubting, but that's really different. And it wasn't the only time that Jesus actually used that term with somebody. For example, in Matthew 14, verse 31, do you remember the story of Peter walking in the water? Well, it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And yet, do we call him doubting, Peter? No, we don't. And that's only one of many references. I'm so glad that um, John, the writer, he took time to allow Thomas as a character to leap to the forefront in two pretty important narratives. As in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, he only actually appears in the list of the apostles. And while there are some variations in the order that the apostles appear and even the names that they're given, um, Thomas is listed in them all. And he is most definitely one of the disciples listed in the book of John, who doesn't actually ever explicitly list every one of them. And interestingly, some scholars have interpreted this to mean that Thomas was probably one of the apostles who was closest to Jesus. But in this book of John, we see Thomas becoming a personality. He becomes a character in his own right. And we see him making significant contributions and get a wee glimpse into some intimate details around his relationship and his walk with Jesus. So what do we know about this guy in terms of his background? We actually know very little. We aren't told his occupation before um, he comes in contact with Jesus. We aren't told his hometown, um, but he was most likely a Jew and probably a Galilean. And we know he went fishing, but we're not told if he was an actual fisherman. So his name was Thomas in Greek and Didymus in Aramaic, and both of those mean twin. But we aren't given any name or any information about any twin that he might have had. Having studied him a fair bit just in preparation for this talk, I really have believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Thomas knew and loved Jesus. This rabbi he had followed and observed, listened to and served for a period of around three years or so. And he would have witnessed many miracles and seen amazing demonstrations of God's power. And in those moments, I'm sure he would have moved from the camp of familiarity with Jesus, this man he journeyed and he did life with, 
to fascinated in terms of all that he saw him doing. There are 37 miracles recorded in the four Gospels, um, miracles of Jesus, and the terms power, signs, and wonders um, are used to depict those. And Thomas, I'm very sure, would have witnessed most of those. He saw his power on display. The Greek word dunamis means mighty deed, and Jesus' overwhelming powerful acts, they went to reveal his omnipotence and his authority. He would have witnessed his signs. Signs were evident and might be defined as miracles that figuratively represent something, such as the kingdom of God. And these signs authenticated his ministry, and they revealed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and the Son of God. And then there were his wonders, which were many, extraordinary happenings. Jesus' miracles were wonderful, they were compelling, they were supernatural acts confirming the divinity of his nature. And I'm sure Thomas must really have wrestled to get his head around this side of Jesus as he witnessed so much of all of this despite his apparent humanity. Because let's think about it, at a grassroots level, Thomas would have eaten with him. He would have been there as he washed his dirty, dusty feet, dressed, washed. He would have seen Jesus struggle as tiredness overcame his physical body at the end of a crazy day. I don't know if um, you've been watching the Chosen series. It's a series like no other, um, which I absolutely love, which depicts Jesus um, and his life. And there have been really loads of poignant moments but I think one of the ones which in particular really stood out for me that I actually struggled to watch it was the episode where it shows Jesus literally staggering past the bickering disciples who are all huddled by this fire and you can just see in his face and his countenance he is absolutely overcome with physical exhaustion having poured out and given of himself all day um, healing the sick, giving every ounce of energy he could muster within the confines of his human body. So on one hand, we have this identifiable humanity, and yet on the other hand, Jesus was like nothing Thomas had ever encountered in another human. Because here was a perfect man whose words were holy. He was always encouraging, even when challenging with truth. Eyes that shone with a depth of love, like bottomless pools. Not one to lose his temper, like everyone else. The righteous anger that we read about in the temple was something very different. He never stretched the truth, competed, or tried to get one up on others. Three years is a pretty long time to sit back and observe and build an accurate picture of somebody's true heart and character. And I'm sure that Thomas very often found himself internally and questioning with the others maybe as well, who is this man? What is this man? As he and the disciples journeyed with Jesus and grappled with his words and his revelations, it's kind of a tension, isn't it? This tension between familiarity versus fascination. So let's have a wee look together at John eleven sixteen. 16. So this is our first real introduction to Thomas. 
Um, after hearing of Lazarus becoming ill, we read how Jesus stayed where he was for two more days before declaring his intention that they all head back to Judea. Now, I can imagine the disciples kind of casting concerned looks with one another and hearing this as they were well aware that the people of this town had previously tried to stone Jesus. So why on earth would he want to go back? And then this is the part I want you to focus on. But then we have Thomas piping up. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't see a doubter here. I see a courageous character with real boldness. And there's profound trust on display here as well. He appears to be all in and seemingly prepared to count the cost if need be, which demonstrates real faith, doesn't it? And this is where my defensive side came in. Some scholars have criticized Thomas here, um, saying, oh, he was a real pessimist, a kind of glass half empty type of person and presuming that they were all going to die if they returned there. But uh, I'm going to just stick with my conviction that this was a commendable moment. Although maybe being a little more positive wouldn't have done any harm. I wonder what Jesus' expression might have been on hearing Thomas's words here. I can just imagine those twinkling eyes brimming with love and maybe even pride as he fixed his gaze on this disciple of his in response to his statement of solidarity and support. And let's remember here too, we are told that Thomas, after Jesus had died and resurrected, he carried the gospel message to the east and he was eventually martyred for his faith. So this wasn't the time, but he did indeed die for his faith in Jesus. You never know. Jesus might even have been thinking about his martyrdom in this John 11 moment. I think Thomas was maybe one of those what you see is what you get type of people. And I kind of like that quality if it's balanced with a healthy awareness of the feelings of others because you know where you stand with them. He didn't seem to hold back when he was struggling to grasp what Jesus was saying or doing. He kind of laid all his cards on the table. And here is one such moment. So this is during Jesus' last Passover where Thomas asks the way to the Father. So let's have a little read to get a bit of context around this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place, the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus, the way to the Father. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? 
In this moment, I think Thomas just says what everyone else is thinking, but is maybe afraid to articulate. So maybe Honest Thomas would have been a better name for him. I think he's genuinely trying to get his head around what Jesus is saying here, because this was probably a really emotionally charged moment. You can imagine the anxiety and maybe even desperation in Thomas's voice here as he questions Jesus because he loves this man. He has given up so much to follow him and now he's talking about leaving them. Well, where is he going? Why is he going? How is he going? So many questions. And maybe this is something you can relate to. Maybe you have so many questions too. Elizabeth Elliot says this, faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. Thomas brings this question right to the feet of Jesus, and that's where we need to bring our questions as well. It makes sense to me that he's pushing for answers. If, the, if his rabbi Jesus is going to go to his father's house, then he needs to understand the way to get there, especially because Jesus seems to think that he gets it, that he knows the way to get there. And the thought of separation and the resulting dialogue, to me, reinforces just the depth of Thomas' love and commitment and dedication to Jesus, who then responds, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Thomas, like most of the other disciples, he abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour. And I think we've so far built up a little bit of a picture of the relationship between them. So can you imagine the mental torture he would have endured as he tried to live with himself after such a betrayal? How could he have let Jesus down like that? And after Jesus was gone, had been put to death, Thomas couldn't even throw himself at the feet of Jesus, begging for forgiveness for such a cowardly act. But I want to focus a good wee bit here on the scene which earns him that nickname, Doubter. Um, so we read how Thomas wasn't present with the other disciples whenever Jesus appeared to them after rising from the dead. And I can't help but wonder why. Was his heart just too broken? Had he withdrawn just to be by himself? Maybe he didn't see any point in getting together with all of these people who had kind of been thrown together under Jesus because Jesus wasn't even there anymore. So what was the point? Let's have a little read of John 19, starting um, verse 25. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. When, sorry, go back Johnny there. Yeah. Yeah, I've done that one. Go on to the next one. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The others... We're all there. They witnessed firsthand the risen Jesus standing there in their midst. They heard his voice. They saw his hands and sighed um, and felt his breath upon them. And honestly, it comes as no surprise to me that Thomas was struggling to believe and to grasp the enormity of the words that he was told afterwards. We have seen the Lord. I don't think it was a case of him completely rejecting the news of Jesus' appearance. He just needed to see it for himself. And I was thinking of a scenario personally where had I not been there to witness a miracle, I most likely would have doubted too. Now, we've told this story before, so I'm going to make it incredibly brief. But uh, basically, we had a friend who had a number of dislocated vertebrae in her back due to a car accident. Um, her spine was kind of this sort of a shape, so she was very bent over and her mobility um, was really poor. She was, um, yeah, barely able to walk at times. And uh, Jesus did a miracle at a conference that we were at, and I physically watched as her spine straightened before my eyes. And this girl, who had literally barely been able to move, I watched as she ran up a flight of stairs and right round the galley and then right down that flight of stairs. And, you know, I was thinking, had I not been there and had Chris phoned me and told me that, I fully imagine struggling to fully believe him until I had seen it with my own eyes. And I, I'll own that Thomas, this is not the first exposure Thomas had had to somebody rising from the dead because I'd mentioned Lazarus earlier, who had been brought back to life, walking out of that tomb, wrapped in all his burial bandages. I've no idea how he actually saw to get out. But um, I think this was different. There was so much at stake if Thomas was to get his hopes up. And the others had no reason to doubt because they had seen, they had heard, and they had received but I think there was so much riding on this for Thomas. And maybe if it hadn't turned out to be true, it would have completely broken his spirit because maybe he was just hanging on by a thread as it was. I think the other disciples would probably have had the same reaction as Thomas had they not been there to see the risen Jesus firsthand. What if you'd been in Thomas's shoes? Do you think that you would have accepted the news without a shadow of a doubt? I'm really not so sure that I would have. At the end of the day, all Thomas wanted was the same evidence that the others had got. And it's also worth highlighting that according to Matthew and Mark and Luke, the other disciples had doubted the resurrection as well. 
Because we read in Luke 24, verses 9 to 11, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. You should always believe the words of women, isn't that right, Chris? The Anchor Yale Dictionary makes a really interesting suggestion, which is that John chose to focus on Thomas to illustrate the doubt that all of the disciples shared. I like that. I think this is good. It says, Thomas has been chosen from among the 12 to dramatize the disbelief of the group. The refusal of the disciples to believe the testimony of those who had seen the risen Lord is a common feature of the gospel tradition. The fourth evangelist alone has chosen Thomas to represent and symbolize this doubt. Now, Thomas had to wait a whole week before seeing Jesus in person for himself. And I have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus had reasons for that timing. But as we all know, waiting for God's timing can be so hard. It is so far from easy with our human nature, which just wants answers now, and we want to see results um, in our timing. And just as I was preparing this, I feel that that is something as well that the Lord would love to do some ministry into, some people who are maybe really struggling with the timing of something that you have brought before Jesus. So I would really encourage you to get some prayer ministry for that later on too. This period of waiting, it must have felt like an eternity for poor Thomas. But I do wonder, in retrospect, did he look back on that period of time and days to come with some understanding around the pause? Maybe he had needed some time to process and to think about the words that Jesus had previously spoken where he talked about dying and being resurrected again because they kind of made more sense now in the natural did he need to work through the process of forgiving himself for abandoning Jesus when he needed him most? And was he just trying to deal with the trauma that Chris referred to last week of what Jesus had been through and how that had affected him? I've reflected many a time on God's timing. And, you know, I am so grateful that he can see the, the full picture um, more than I could. Uh, as difficult as it can be, our faith in God includes faith in his timing. Regardless of the reasons, when the resurrected Christ appeared to Thomas, his reaction was both wonderful and beautiful. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I think we're going to read this a little bit. Johnny, if you can put that up. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
This second appearance of Jesus in the house, it actually has many similarities and in fact mirrors his first. We have the locked door. We have the words, um, Jesus came and stood among them and peace be with you. But there was one major difference and that is that Thomas on this occasion was there. And Jesus pretty much immediately turns right to him, addressing him personally. And here I think you can really see Jesus' compassion for Thomas and understanding and a patience with his human struggle and his doubt. And he doesn't leave him hanging, sure he doesn't, but he gets right in there, he gets straight to the point. And interestingly, he doesn't start to explain anything, but he immediately invites Thomas to come close, to do exactly what Thomas said he would need to do to actually believe. Psalm 94, verse 19 says, when doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. And in this moment, hope and cheer was most definitely renewed. And you know what? It doesn't actually say if Thomas literally put his fingers where the nails were and if he actually places his hand into Jesus' side. Some presume that he did, but part of me wonders whether this would even have been necessary for Thomas in this moment. I kind of imagine that he would have become so lost in the comforting familiarity of Jesus' presence, yet at the same time confronted with a sense of holy fear and reverence way beyond anything that he had experienced up to this point at the presence of the risen Jesus standing right beside him. Would he have found himself transfixed on Jesus' face, the one who knew him like no other and saw right into the depths of his soul with an unconditional love that no human interaction could ever come anywhere close to? Jesus asking Thomas to put his hands on his wounds, it isn't an experience to shame him, but to bring him ultimate comfort. Because sometimes I think we can have a bit of a warped perspective relating to who God is. And we can sometimes assume that he wants to shame our unbelief rather than replacing it with himself. As doubts surface in our own lives, Jesus invites us to do just what he did with Thomas, come close. And for us too, this invitation will cause our confidence and our faith to rise once again in our Lord and in our God. Because when we come face to face with Jesus in the sense of experiencing that closeness of his presence, his intimate touch, anything that would seek to hold us back is dissolved in the presence of the risen Lord. And Thomas is then commissioned by Jesus, stop doubting and believe. And again, this is more likely to be an affirming, strengthening statement rather than a shaming one. In these seconds of encounter, I imagine that any remaining residue of doubt, fear, shame simply falls away and is replaced by resolute belief. A strength of belief that sticks from this moment onwards for Thomas causing him to live a life completely fueled by resurrection wonder. 
And Jesus then speaks one of the most powerful and prophetic statements about faith in all of Scripture. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus' willingness to engage Thomas in the midst of all of his doubts, I think it's a real encouragement for us today to bring our doubts to him too. And it's important to recognize that in Jesus' response to Thomas, he acknowledged how much harder it would be for those who had never seen his miracles to really believe. But we need to remember what we do have. We have the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to testify to our spirits that we are his and that he is ours. John 12, verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Jesus doesn't actually ask us to blindly put our faith in him. Instead, we're actually invited to investigate this for ourselves, to investigate that he is the way and the truth and the life. And we have the privilege too, I think, don't we, of, of seeing life through the lens of being in the hands of the risen Savior. Because death has been defeated, nothing can ever separate us from the height and the depth of his love. And if we could truly get our heads around this today, it would be as mind-blowing as it was for Thomas in his day. Here's a little thing for you to think about. Doubt is the opposite of certainty. Faith is built on uncertainty, but choosing to believe. Doubt is the opposite of certainty. Faith is built on uncertainty, but choosing to believe. And uh, there was a South Korean Christian minister, David Yongi Cho, um, he said this, faith and doubt will always exist together. Believing is choosing faith over doubt. <clears throat> Matthew 17, verse 20. I'm coming into land soon, guys. You're doing great. Um, <laughs> this is a really encouraging verse. It says, today, or sorry, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the picture the Lord painted for the disciples, it was one of hope. It was actually the idea that our faith doesn't need to be outwardly large to have a large impact. And if we think about the tiny mustard seed, it holds the potential of a 30-foot bush. So a seemingly inconsequential speck of faith can move mountains. But you know what? I don't want to be satisfied with a tiny mustard seed of faith. I think that we are called to more in these days, not just for us personally, but for the sake of the kingdom. To cry out to Jesus for a new revelation of his resurrection power, as if we, like Thomas, were standing face to face with the risen Jesus with utter fascination. 
Imagine looking into the eyes of the one who created you and loves you fiercely and is spurring you on in your Christian life race. Hebrews 12 verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We need fresh revelation to propel us forward to live the lives fueled by resurrection wonder, to step into the kingdom plans that God has for every one of us that he has written over us. And in this day and age in which we live, the lost, the hurting, the broken, the suicidal are desperate for God's people, that's us, to step out in boldness and faith, shouting from the rooftops of his love, his acceptance, his hope, and his healing. The invitation to come and find family, to become part of a, a kingdom family where the lonely will be alone no more. When I look at that new building, that is my heart, that Jesus would fill it with those who need to encounter him in his resurrection power and find life, both now and for eternity. Do you know, Thomas did great in the end. He truly got it in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, and he gave everything to run his own personal race, commissioned for him to run. So our prayer is, Holy Spirit, may we be fueled to do the same. So Caroline, if I can invite you in the band up. Um, we're going to have a, a brief opportunity to respond um, in worship. But just as the guys are getting themselves sorted there, let's just take a wee minute to remind ourselves of maybe what God has been doing and saying to us this morning. I feel that there are a number of things on his heart today. The breaking of labels that I referred to at the beginning. Trusting in his timing. Renewed hope and cheer in the midst of doubts. And I would just really encourage you, let's use this worship time to cry out to Jesus for a new revelation of his resurrection power in each of our lives. <laughs>